reading from Romans 12, 9 through 13. Let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil, cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Take the lead in honoring one another. Do not lack diligence and zeal. Be fervent in the spirit and serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs and pursue hospitality. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your love is holy, perfect, and ever-present in our lives. We see the clearest manifestation of your love for us in the completed and absolutely sufficient work of Jesus on the cross on our behalf. We know that your love is meant to be contagious and that a right understanding of the cross should make us the most loving people in the world. Forgive, forgive us of the times that we see others as enemies and when we seek to honor ourselves, especially at the cost of others. Holy Spirit, empower us to love fervently and without hypocrisy. May your love bring us together, mending division and truly unifying your church. Bless Pastor Jeff as he preaches. Holy Spirit, use his words to convict where necessary and encourage where needed and ultimately to spur us on to love more like you. We ask all this in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Justin. Good morning, folks. If you have your Bible, you can turn there to Romans 12. We'll be in actually verses 9 through 21. We're going to close out the chapter this morning. Uh, whenever I hear people say things like, oh, the worship is really good at that church. Or, I really enjoy the worship at our church. Or, worse yet, I don't go to that church anymore because I really don't care for their worship. Something in me cringes when I hear statements like that. It's because they're wrong on multiple levels. First, they are entirely oriented to the individual's experience of worship. Now, let me say a word in defense of our experience in worship. To suggest that worship is mere robotic service is also not right. Worship does not uh, most definitely, it does most definitely stir the affections and should stimulate us to greater faith and good deeds, no doubt. But only associating worship with the weekend worship service and how the song service made me feel is really not a biblical definition of worship. Second, these statements misunderstand the biblical definition of worship that is not primarily singing along in a weekend worship service. Now, again, uh, l let me say this. In defense of having a wonderful worship team, which aren't you glad we have such wonderful people? to serve us and give of their time, sacrifice of their time. The Old Testament envisioned temple worship to be loud, vocal singing, accompanied by a variety of instruments. And this often involves shouting and celebration unto the Lord. And frankly, I'd like to hear a little more of that next week. So make a note of that. Well, worship is not for me, so who cares what I'd like to hear? Now, Paul here provides the most extensive definition of Christian worship in the entire Bible. It is the entirety of Romans chapter 12. 
As a matter of fact, in fact, Paul here does not mention public, the public worship service in terms of singing at all. Now, the public assembly, assembly of worship is mentioned in other passages. 1 Corinthians, we noted last week, chapters 11 through 14. That has to do with the public assembly in the worship service. Uh, Colossians chapter 3. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, 19 and following, Paul tells us to be filled with the word of Christ, Christ's word, as we sing songs and make melodies in our hearts, singing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. We are to do that when we come together. No doubt that's part of our Christian worship. But understand, Christian worship has to do mainly with service. If you were a Jew and you lived in the first century and someone said, are you going to the temple to worship? you would say, is it festival time? And if it was festival time, you actually had to bring an offering that you were going, by serving the Lord, serving your God, and sacrificing that animal on the altar. It was an act of reasonable service. And here, Paul is clearly focused on the totality of the believer's worship life. He introduces the topic in chapter 12, verse 1, by telling us that we need to offer God our worship, our bodies as sacrifices, living sacrifices. So here, I'm going to put this up on the screen. Everything we do as individuals and members of the gathered assembly is our worship. And Paul tells us that our worship is either acceptable and pleasing to God or it isn't. Do you think in those terms? Do you typically think in terms of your worship either being an acceptable offering to the Lord or not pleasing, not acceptable. And he tells us, he goes on to tell us what is acceptable and what pleases the Lord. He says our worship is the offering of our bodies and reasonable sacrificial acts of service. That's verse 1. Then he says our worship is acceptable when we surrender our thinking to God's authority in his word, which is, has a transforming effect on the mind. That's verse 2. He says, our worship is acceptable and pleasing when we think wisely and prudently about ourselves, exercising sober judgment about ourselves in light of God's word. That's verse 3. And then our worship is pleasing. It's acceptable to God when we discover, develop, and deploy our spiritual gifts for the building up of the commonwealth of Christ, of the body of Christ. That's verses 4 through 8. And today, he's going to tell us that our worship is acceptable and pleasing to God when it expresses itself in loving attitudes and actions toward the family of God and toward outsiders, people who are not part of the family yet. Ancient moralists love to end their letters with lists, to-do lists. They love to end their letters with vice and virtue lists, prescribing moral action for their readers. Paul is no different except for his theology. Paul knows that short of the sinner being washed in the blood of Jesus justified by faith alone, filled with God's empowering, enable, enabling Holy Spirit, that sinner is lost forever and cannot hope to, li to live up to the demands of the moral life in Christ. But now he is going to enumerate some things that we need to put in practice in the life of the body. So Paul tells us, number one, acceptable worship is expressed in loving attitudes and actions to the family. To the family. Let's read those verses again. Up to verse 16. He says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. 
Take the lead in honoring one another. Do not lack diligence and zeal and be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs and pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep and live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud. Instead, associate with the humble Do not be wise in your own estimation. So let's first start with a definition of Christian love. What does it mean to love someone in the body of Christ? What does that mean? There are several words used in the New Testament or in Greek culture that you could use to translate love. The first one being the verb agapao. Agapao, and it's noun agape. You've probably heard of this if you've been in the church any time at all. It means to have a warm regard for or interested another, to cherish and have affection in the heart. This is the word that is most often associated with God's love toward us. So it means to have a warm regard for and interest in another, to cherish them, to have affection in the heart for someone else. And then there is the word phileo, phileo, and it's noun phile, meaning to take a special interest in someone. To consider someone a friend usually expressed with the customary social kiss. Do you have any friends in church this morning? I should see a lot of kissing. (laughs) According to the Bible. (laughs) This word appears. I'm just joking by that, by by the way. So some of you who are predisposed to do that, don't do that. Uh, This is not ancient Greece. So this word appears also in the New Testament in a compound term. It's the word Philadelphia. And that is a compound of two Greek words, phile and also adelphos, or adelphia, and it means uh, brotherly love, brotherly or sisterly love, mutual affection between family members. This is family love. This is the love you have toward a brother or a sister. This is the love you have toward uh, a family member, a close family member now. And then there is the word eros. The word eros means romantic love, love with sexual intent, attractional or physical love. This word actually does not appear in the Bible. It doesn't appear in the New Testament. Uh, however, I think we, would, we can all recognize that if it were not for this kind of love, none of us would be sitting here, right? So let me show you in Romans 12 which words he uses for love here. Again, verse 9. He says, let love, agape, right? Let your warm regard for and interest in others Yet let the fact that you cherish them and you have an affection in your heart for them be without hypocrisy. And he says, detest evil and cling to what is good and love one another, Philadelphia. And this is the word here for brotherly, sisterly, family love, deep brotherly and sisterly love. So love involves, we learn, both our actions and our sentiments, our feelings and our emotions, our attitudes and our actions. Often feelings follow actions. The Christian is to take action, to express their love. That is free from hypocrisy, meaning it's sincere, it's authentic, it's genuine. And we are to cling or to attach ourselves, we're to anchor ourselves in that which is good, abhorring, despising what is evil, and to love everyone regardless of their stance toward us, to love our friends and our enemies and everybody in between. That we understand that genuine Christian love embraces the good and detests that which is evil. Paul says it again in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Uh, Second 
generation reformer John Calvin put it this way. He said, but evil is to be taken for that which is malicious, that malicious wickedness by which an injury is done to men and good for that kindness by which help is rendered to them. And, and there is here an antithesis used in scripture when vices are first forbidden and then virtues are enjoined upon us. And that is precisely what Paul is doing. He's trying to counteract the vices that already exist in the culture and then enjoin to us that loving action that characterizes the Christian life. So Paul is going to highlight for us several of these attitudes. What does it mean? Now, now let's put some uh, jeans and sneakers on this. Like, what does it mean for us to have this kind of agape and Philadelphia love toward the body? Well, the first thing he mentions here is devoted affection. He says, love one another deeply. Devoted affection. This devotion stands in contrast to superficial and shallow allegiances. I'll just give you an example of this. I used to love the Seattle Seahawks. Back in college, the Seattle Seahawks, their training camp was on our college campus in Kirkland. We actually owned the facility where they trained. And so every summer, they would come down to the college and employ a bunch of us starving college students to work in the training camp. So for a couple years, I got to work. Uh, Carrie and I both, we got to work in the Seattle Seahawks uh, training camp a couple summers. Uh, And then after that, we lived in Washington many years on and off. and, And I just have always been a Seattle Seahawks fan. And then a few years back, they actually went to the Super Bowl. They won the Super Bowl. And then they went back to the Super Bowl and lost epically. And then after that, I just kind of decided my allegiance to the Seahawks is really shallow. It's really, what is it even grounded in? I just like their helmets better than the the bangles or something. I mean, what is it even grounded in? And now I've decided that my new ethic, this is a situational football ethic, is that I just like whoever wins. Because I just figure whoever wins deserves to win. They won, right? So now that is not devotion. Now, some of you literally are looking at me with eyes of heresy. Like, you're looking at me as if I'm a blasphemer. I understand that. But I just don't have devotion to a football team. I love to watch football, but I don't have a devotion. Devotion involves loyalty. And in the Christian sense, it involves loyalty to a family, Someone whose life is characterized by devotion or devoted affection to the brotherhood is a person who is reliably committed. Let me ask you this morning, are you reliably committed? Are you reliably committed, especially in such a highly mobile culture where it's just so easy to bounce from church to church? Are you reliably committed to a church family? I want to encourage you today, make that your commitment. Love expresses itself like this. In devoted affection. Next, he mentions honoring others. He says, brothers and sisters, take the lead in honoring one another. Well, the Roman culture was obsessed with obtaining personal honor and glory. And, and in that world, honor was a zero-sum game most often. You obtain personal honor through the shame and defeat of your rival publicly. So if it's a political rival, if it's a philosophical rival, if it's a sports rival... Every time someone confers upon you honor, it is at the expense of someone else and they leave the field or they leave the arena in shame and in tears. And I think of the Super Bowl again. It really is a good example, actually. 
There can only be one winner of the title, right? And that win is at the expense of someone else's dreams of glory. And it doesn't matter that the losing team beat everyone else to be there and earned their spot in the big dance, the big game. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that they won divisional titles. Because in that game, the only thing that matters is do they go home with the Vince Lombardi trophy? And in Paul's ancient world, acquiring personal honor and glory was most often at someone else's expense. Someone's going to walk out of the arena, political or otherwise, in tears and in public shame for you to have honor. But Paul says in the Christian life and in the Christian family, this is not how the game is played. Paul says this is not how the game is played. Play in such a way that others win. Play in such a way that others win. Take the lead. Be first in honoring your brothers and sisters. Next, he mentions enthusiasm and passion. He says, do not lack in zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. By contrast, our fleshly nature is like a donkey. Always lethargic. Resistant to progress or to effort in holiness. And must be aggravated and goaded by the Spirit, spurred on toward love and good deeds in the body. And so the fruit of the Spirit is an enthusiasm for service to the body of Christ, while the works of the flesh are characterized by laziness, lethargy, inactivity, driven by the need to be a consumer, right? To just come to church and consume a product. Let me ask you a question. Is that how you treat church? Don't raise your hands. You don't have to raise your hands, but, but just in your heart, answer this question before God. Is that how you treat the church? The church is just a, another store that you shop at where you come and you consume a product and then you go home, but your life and your heart and your mind and your activity is not planted in the family, planted in the life of the church. And so we're to have enthusiasm and passion when it comes to serving the Lord, diligent, zealous, engaged. Next, he says, joyful endurance, rejoice in hope, be patient in affliction, be persistent in prayer. Rejoicing in the hope of our salvation when Christ comes, patient despite our various afflictions, and persistent to seek God in prayer. Prayer keeps us anchored to our foundation. More than that, More than keeping us anchored to the bedrock of our hope, prayer is the oxygen that sustains our hope, that causes it to burn brightly and joyfully. How can a Christian really know joy in the midst of suffering, joy in the midst of trying times? It's because the believer is buoyed, sustained by the power from another realm. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, listen, we love you. We're glad that you're here. But if this kind of joyful endurance, joyful experience in the Lord just sounds foreign to you and you've walked in with anxiety and misery, listen, you can have it today by turning over your heart and your life and your mind to Jesus who died on a cross for your sins and rose on the third day to vindicate his claim to be Lord. You can have that joyful endurance today. And you will know a peace that passes all human understanding. 
Paul goes on to say generous sharing and fellowship, share with the saints in their needs and pursue hospitality. Paul uses a familiar term here. This is the word koinonia. Have you heard this term? Koinonia, it just means a voluntary fellowship, a voluntary association, to voluntarily show up, to get in the game, to be a part of the family. The Christian is set ablaze with God's love and generous hospitality toward others in sharing of resources and time and sociable, friendly neighborliness. The Christian church is not to feel like you walked into a freezer full of embalmed saints or Christian cadavers, frozen, but a warm, lustrous, sociable family alive in the glow of Christian fellowship. Do you feel that when you come in the door on Sunday mornings? I hope you do. I hope you do. And then he mentions earnest participation in verse 15. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. The church is not to be a place of indifference to people's emotions or their suffering or their joys. Indifference where all we have are agendas and we just tolerate each other as each individual member just builds their personal fiefdom. No, we are called to be a community of sympathetic participants sympathetic participants, people who are in sympathy with one another and participate in the highs and lows and the joys and victories, their trials and triumphs of the body of Christ, of our brothers and sisters. So every joy we experience, every single joy we experience is magnified in community. Every joy you can ever experience, whether it's having a baby, a new baby, or getting that new job, Or maybe just the joy of transitioning out of your old job. Some of you who are retired, you've experienced that joy. But every joy that you experience in life is magnified in Christian community, in the family. And every suffering that you are bearing is more bearable when everyone helps you carry it. And this is why it is so vital. It is so critical for us to get in the game. It's so critical for us to get connected in the family. If you are disconnected and you are out there on your own, let me tell you, you are a soft, wide target for the devil. You've got a big target on your back. You're, You're an easy mark for him. And so we're to, we're to practice earnest participation. Rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. And lastly, he mentions humble unity. Humble unity. Living in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Why does he put these things together? This is not random here. Here's why harmony and humility go together. Every time there is a breakdown in harmony, I bet you, I would put money on the table. I would wager that there's a breakdown in humility. Now, you and I, when we come into conflict with each other, we have essentially two choices in order to maintain our unity through humility, our harmony through humility. We can admit our fault if we're in fault. He says, as far as it depends on you. Well, if it doesn't depend on you, you can't admit fault that's not yours, right? Now, sometimes believers come together And they have a disagreement, and they just cannot discern in the midst of that disagreement who is right and who is wrong. And so we either have to admit our faults or admit our finiteness. We are not God. 
Our knowledge is not infinite. We know in part and we prophesy in part. And now we just have to agree to disagree and say, listen, we're not going to part ways over this. I don't know if you're at fault. I don't think I'm at fault. I think I'm still right. But I, I want to maintain my relationship with you in the body of Christ. And so we can either admit our fault or admit our finiteness. But humility and harmony go hand in hand. Now, you show me any relationship that is broken up, and this could be at the personal level. This could be a marriage. This could be a friendship. This could be a business partnership. This could be a church that is split and divided. And I guarantee you, I can find some people who were just bullheaded and stubborn, stubborn and wouldn't give up their idea, either wouldn't admit their fault or wouldn't admit their finiteness. And this is what Paul is calling us to do. So a major aspect of our Acceptable worship is that it is expressed in loving attitudes and loving actions toward the body, toward the family members. And Paul then turns our attention to outsiders. Number two, he says acceptable worship is is expressed in loving attitudes and actions toward outsiders. I used to be an associate pastor at a church where you were not allowed ever to refer to non-Christians as outsiders. And I would sometimes ask why? They're not members. They're not participants in the family of God. They don't come to the communion table and drink the blood and eat the flesh. They are outsiders. Doesn't mean we don't love them. Doesn't mean we don't befriend them. It doesn't mean we don't do everything we can as far as it is up to us to build a bridge of relationships to them, but they are not family members. Now, Paul addresses this. And the rest of these verses to 21, he's going to say, this is how you handle the people who are outsiders. They're not members. They're not believers. And they may even be antagonistic towards you. And I think he is telling us here about compassionate tolerance, which involves acceptance without approval. Acceptance without approval. True Christian tolerance involves accepting people where they are. I, listen, I don't expect anyone to exhibit right behavior before right belief. Do you? I don't expect a sinner to act like a Christian before they are a Christian. And so we accept them where they are, but that doesn't mean we approve of everything they do or every choice they make or everything they believe. And so this is Christian tolerance. This is what Paul actually commands in Romans chapter 2. He commands the, the Romans to be tolerant of one another. This is bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. That's verse 14. Verse 17, he says, do not repay evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. So generally, be an honorable person, right? Don't be dishonorable. And then claiming that Christ is your Lord. And he says in verse 18, he says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Well, sometimes it doesn't depend on you. But if it does depend on you, live at peace, live in harmony, even with the people who are outsiders, who are not members of the Christian faith or your church. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will heap fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil. Conquer evil. You're still in a contest. You're still in a war. You're still in a fight. But the way you win that fight is you conquer evil with good. You conquer evil with your compassion. You conquer evil with your care and concern for the people who don't name Jesus as Lord, and you conquer it with the truth. 
by standing firmly on the gospel and its value system. And so Paul is quick now to, to turn our attention to those outside the family. People who don't share our beliefs, they don't share our commitments, they don't share our values, they may not even like us. They may even be antagonistic toward us. We're, we're to bless them and not curse them. We're to take the high road and never demand vengeance in our hands. We are to befriend the sinner and let the cross offend the sinner. And those two things together are vital. We are to show people the kindness that they refuse to show us as sinners. We're to offer them mercy which they could never extend to us because they don't know the merciful Savior, Jesus And we're not to hate what is evil, and we are to hate what is evil and love those who perpetrate evil against us. That is one of the hardest things to do in the Christian life, is to to obey Paul, to hate what is evil, to abhor it, to detest it, to cling to that which is good, but then also to love the people who are perpetrating evil against us or against our culture. Have you found that that's difficult? I found that that's exceedingly difficult. Well, then that's why we should pray. Not right now, but pray in your life. So let me ask you, do you pray for the people you disagree with? How much time do we spend arguing with them versus praying for them? Likewise, would you you help someone who doesn't agree with you politically if they needed something from you? Paul says, if they're thirsty, give them something to drink. If they're hungry, feed them. Show them the compassion of the gospel. Show them that be the hands of Jesus. And likewise, let me ask you this. Would you stand on the truth firmly, resolutely, if the discussion comes to that? Would you say to your friend that you want to express compassion to, listen, I'm not moving. (laughs) I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying right here. I'm firmly planted and anchored in this word. I know that it is a tremendous burden for those who are the righteousness of God in Christ. You know, that's what the Bible calls us. That's what Paul refers to us as. Paul says that we are the righteousness of God in Christ, not because of our own righteousness, but because of Christ's imputed righteousness to us. And it is difficult when you become a believer, okay? It is exceedingly difficult when you come, become a believer to carry the weight of the world's scorn, their rejection, the fact that they despise you, the unrighteous. The unrighteousness of our times is a burden that the righteous must bear. And so long as we are in the body, we make it our aim to persuade others, Paul says. So long as there is breath in our lungs, we make it our goal to appeal to those who are lost to be saved. Turn to Jesus. Believe and repent and be baptized so that you can, like Peter says on the day of Pentecost, escape the coming wrath and enter into the joy of your master, which is eternal life with Christ and resurrection in the new age. And that's our message. It's outreach to the lost without ever denying that they are lost. And so what happens when a church who is supposed to live in this tension between grace and truth, mercy and certainty... What happens when churches become unmoored from the gospel according to the scriptures and the value system of that gospel that comes with that gospel? What happens? Well, I hate to bring this up, but I am. Uh, As many of you know who attend here regularly, you know I do not stand up here and harp every week on other ministries. I think that's judgmental. I think that's unchristian. I do not like doing that. Uh, But once in a while, like Paul, who calls out 
a couple of people, a couple, three people in his letters for abandoning the gospel. I just have to do it, especially if that ministry or that person has broad influence in the evangelical church. So in recent days, it has come to light by a small group of leaders who attended a very intimate closed-door leadership seminar with famous pastor and author Andy Stanley. Many of you know his name. And in that training, he openly affirmed the LGBTQ cause. It turns out that Andy has, in in the past, made a variety of affirming statements of the LGBTQ thing in his sermons as well, openly saying that those folks who are gay and lesbian in the midst of the church love Jesus more than the people who name Christ as Lord. And so he apparently has repeatedly done this. So I've looked at some of the evidence that they've, they've uh, given sort of online, and I think it's credible. I think it's credible. I think he has become an affirming, what's called an affirming pastor. Uh, I had mentioned a few months ago that Andy came out and disaffirmed uh, the Old Testament. A few years back, he preached a message called Unhitching Christianity from the Old Testament or the Bible. And I had mentioned in that sermon that that seems to me to be kind of dangerous. I mean, don't you think that's kind of dangerous? And so it should come as no surprise to us when a public pastor like Andy, who pastors, I I can't even wrap my head around this, 40,000 people, one of the largest churches, if not the largest church in the United States, hundreds of Thousands of people watch his sermons and his teaching online. I used to be one of them because he is a fantastic speaker. I mean, just a master speaker. And then millions of people buy his books and imbibe his literature and and subsist on the things that he teaches. And now he thinks that we should treat those who claim to be LGBTQ and otherwise plus as as if they are just handicapped. Provide an on-ramp into the church for them. Let them serve in your ministries. And I would say this, no way, no way. In the name of compassion, frankly, that's not compassion at all. That isn't compassion. Paul puts it this way. What they would say is, you'll hear Andy say in the video clips that it posted, well, it's complex. Is it? Is it complex? Because Paul didn't seem to think so. Paul told the Greco-Romans, the most morally vile people in the history of the world, he told them, forget your old life. Do not live according to your old nature, but put on the new self. Put on the new nature. Put on Christ. And it is true. There's a real tension here. A believer Every one of you lives in this tension between your old nature, which is constantly wanting to pull you back into idolatry and back into sin. But Paul says to all of us, regardless of what your sin is, regardless of what you've repented of, Paul says to us all, put on Christ. Put on the new self. Put on the new nature. And so for Paul, when he writes to the Ephesians, for example, who were involved in some of the most profligate some of the most uh, egregious morality, immorality in the ancient world. He says, remember what you once were. Remember what you used to be, chapter two? Well, you aren't that anymore. 
Now you're in Christ. And this is the way the church is to handle it. It's not that we don't have compassion. It's not that we don't have mercy. Listen, whatever you're struggling with and you're here this morning, we have compassion. We have mercy. We do not want you to struggle with it in the dark. We want you to drag it into the light of the cross. Bring it into community, into safe community where you can confess it and be healed. That's what James tells us. Confess your sins so that you may be healed. So it's not that we don't have compassion. It's just that this is what real compassion is. It is accepting a person where they are and not approving of everything they choose, not approving of everything they believe, and then calling them to repentance. Do you remember what Jesus did in the Gospels? He went about all the towns in northern Israel, Bethsaida, Capernaum, Chorazin, and he went to those towns and he did good. And what did he do? He healed their diseases and he cast demons out of the demonized. And then what did he do a, few, a couple of months later? He went back to those towns and denounced them. And the scripture says he denounced them and all the miracles he had done there because they refused to repent. Whatever happened to repentance... Whatever happened to the message that you are saved by God's grace and he has called you to repent of the old and turn to the new. This is what Peter says on the day of Pentecost. He says, come, be baptized, believe, escape the coming wrath. And Paul wants to make it very clear in this text. You and I are not to take our vengeance out on the sinner because that's God's job. That is God's prerogative. That is way, way above our pay grade. Way. And so what good is the gospel if it doesn't give our enemies something to eat when they are hungry or give them something to drink when they are thirsty or show them the compassion and the love and the mercy of the gospel while standing unmoved and unfixed on the gospel and the value system that attends it? And Paul tells us what acceptable worship is. He tells us what pleasing worship is. He says that we are to offer our bodies to God as living sacrifices, our minds to be transformed by his word, by renewing in the word, not conformed to the pattern of the world, thinking sensibly and soberly about ourselves so that we may offer our service and our spiritual gifts to the body of Christ for its upbuilding, for its edification. And here today, he tells us that true worship, acceptable worship, expresses God's love in actions and attitudes both to the family and to outsiders who aren't part of our family yet. And I hope that's your commitment today. I hope in this message, your heart is stirred, your affections are stirred, and your heart is stirred to commit to that. Love the family. Love the people who aren't in the family yet. And we're going to do it. We're going to speak the truth in love. Amen? All right, let's pray. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back to the stage. If you will join me in prayer. Father, we thank you. We're grateful for this gospel. We're grateful that it comes with power. And that it is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. And so, Lord, today we just want to commit ourselves not to watering it down, to distill it, to make it something else that it's not. And we, we recognize that you came bringing grace and truth, and we are going to live in that tension. We're going to offer people the mercy and compassion and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're also going to tell them the truth, and we're going to do it unflinchingly. We're going to do it without batting an eye. We're going to do it grounded and founded in your word 
And Lord, please help us today to be more Christianly. Father, will you help us in our attitudes and our actions to love the people around us? And Lord, we just, we just commit ourselves to that. Lord, we commit ourselves to loving the family as you have spelled out and enumerated right here in the passage. Will you help us to do it? And Lord, we commit ourselves to loving those who aren't in the family yet, to, to, to be the hands and the heart of Jesus reaching out to them and to offer them the grace and the mercy and the love of the Lord while also telling them the truth. And we make that commitment as a church today as well. In Jesus' name, amen. 